Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 260 Enlightenment is Capable of Endless Enlargement. We're joined this week by advanced contemplative Gary Weber to explore his experience of living in a state of virtually no self referential emotions or thoughts. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vince Horn, and I'm back again for another geeky episode. And today we're speaking with a very special guest. We're joined today by Gary Weber over Skype. Gary, uh, thanks again for taking the time to uh, to chat with the geeks. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Cool. And I'll, I'll just share a little bit of background on Gary and, and his uh, practice experience, which we'll get into in more depth. Um, but basically, uh, Gary's been a longtime contemplative on the one hand, uh, having practiced all sorts of different approaches from yoga to Zen to Ramana Maharshi style Advaita. Um, and in addition, also um, has a very uh, long and illustrious career in uh, the material science field, having done his PhD at Penn State. Um, and then having spent many years uh, managing large organizations and large groups with huge budgets. Uh, you said something like quarter billion dollar budget at your last job. Uh, it's a bit, bit more than most people manage, uh, obviously. <laughs> so you have a lot of experience uh, you know, managing big organizations, which you know, in some ways that's probably not the normal profile for a contemplative practitioner, someone who's ver- very serious about this stuff. Um, do you see a lot of other contemplatives who have been in that kind of line of work? No, I haven't, unfortunately. Why do you think that is? I'm just curious. Well, it, it, it takes a lot of time. Yeah. Uh, if you're going to manage a thousand people and run a budget that size, it takes a lot of hours to do it. And uh, you've got to be willing to get up four o'clock in the morning to get your practice in before your workday starts. So I think it's just, it's just that problem. I had a uh, wife and two kids. And so it was really hard to get in practice. You just made the sacrifices and got up early and did it. Gotcha. So, so you went uh, sort of sleep deprived probably for several years. <laughs> <laughs> for over 25 years, yes. That's, that's awesome. Um, I also wanted to mention that you've written a really, a really great book called Happiness Beyond Thought, A Practical Guide to Awakening. It's a really uh, useful uh, and short book on different practices and approaches to, to the path. So... Um, great resource for people that are interested. Thank you. Yeah. And, and now, starting off, I wanted to talk a little bit about your background on the contemplative side of things. Um, I, I understand you've been influenced by a lot of different teachers, traditions, approaches. You don't really locate yourself in one particular area per se, but I know that you know both the teachings of Zen, Ramana Maharshi, uh, and others were really influential to you. So I was wondering if you could maybe share a little bit about your practice background and how that unfolded. Well, how it started was I was in graduate school and uh, I was had one of these epiphanous moments where I saw that my brain was just raging with thoughts. It just would not stop. They were nothing special, not really illustrious thoughts. I wasn't going to cure cancer or anything. It was just a bunch of garbage. And I just thought there had to be some way to manage this process. There has to be a better way to do this. I can't live a life like this. 
So uh, I started reading everything. This was the 70s. And uh, opened this one book. I was having lunch one time out in the front yard of the university. And opened up the first line of this poem. And it said, uh, all beings from the very beginning Buddhas. And I didn't even know what most of that meant. Kind of, I knew what it meant. But then the whole world opened up for like 45 minutes. A space I'd never seen before. I have not done psychedelics. It just didn't work out for me time-wise. But a huge opening. And I turned the book over, and here I saw it was a book of Zen poems. And that turns out to be one of the most famous Zen poems. As your listeners may know, that's one of that's Hakuin's Song of Zazen. So I said, well, I must go off into this Zen thing and start seeing what's going on and get this situation back again. So I set off into Zen. I ended up doing a lot of yoga because I wanted to sit longer and longer times. And yoga allowed me to do that. And I ended up going down both of those paths. Uh, I was really attracted to Basui's work. Those of you who have read Three Pillars of Zen uh, will recognize that uh, there's a bunch of pages in that Three Pillars of Zen by Philip Kaplow about Basui's practice. Basui's practice was using natural questions. You know, who is this that hears? Where am I? What is this? I also found that in Ramana Maharshi's teachings, uh, who was probably my main teacher through all of this. But Basui worked just as well. And I just kept those questions and worked on um, especially for me, who hears and where am I? Those seemed like uh, non-ambiguous uh, questions. They were very clear, precise. They should be able to be answered right now. I was an empirical person by training, so I just uh, went at this empirically and spent a lot of time. Um, when the page finally turned for me, which was 25 years later, I had met many, many people uh, in many, many places, had two main Zen masters, uh, been through four or five teacher trainings in yoga. I had met some big philosophers like Krishnamurti. And um, after 25 years and 20,000 hours of yoga and meditation, uh, the page just completely turned for me and my thoughts stopped. My narrative uh, blah, blah thoughts just stopped. Okay, cool. And, and, and that's one of, I think, one of the most interesting parts of your description of, of practice is that this basic self-narrative thinking process stopping. That's also not something you see a lot of people describing that. So I was wondering if you could share um, sort of phenomenologically, like from the inside, what what has it been like since then? This was what, like 12 years ago, I think I heard you yeah, say? Yeah, it's probably 14 years now. Okay. Most, yeah. What's it been like in the last 14 <clears throat> years? I mean, what what, have, what what's that like with, with uh, very little or no self-narrative thinking? Well, I was very surprised when it happened. Uh, I had been hoping to decrease my thoughts, but I didn't think they would all stop. So I was left there, I'd done a yoga posture, and it went up, I went into it one way and came back down, and all my thoughts had stopped. And here I was with this uh, thousand people and this quarter billion dollar budget to run with no thoughts. So it looked like it would be problematic, but it turns out when I went to work, there was no problem at all, which may say something about corporate management. <laughs> But, but um, there was no, no one noticed. There was nobody noticing the fact that I didn't have any thoughts. There was no halo. There was no glow or anything. There was just no uh, internal dialogue going on. And the thing that surprised me was that even, even now, or also now, with no thoughts, speech emerges. And the most fascinating thing for me was that uh, you can still continue uh, reasoning, planning, problem-solving, you just don't have this ongoing narrative uh, gobbling up bandwidth. So it appears like the brain 
can recognize the difference between this emotionally charged self-referential narrative, which blah, blah, goes on for most people, and this problem solving, which does not have an emotional content to it. Uh, what I do is I go into prepared for meetings, for example, in the corporate world. I would read all of the work ahead of time, be prepared for the meeting, and then I would just go into the meeting and uh, just sitting there, wait to see what came up. And lo and behold, uh, amazing answers came up, amazing solutions came up to problems much smarter than I could ever have developed myself. They were far more elegant than I could ever have thought up. So I was began to trust that after a long time, and I also give my talks the same way. You just come into the room, you've learned the stuff, of course, you just start to begin talking and see what emerges. And it's invariably much better than anything I could have thought up myself. Well, just to clarify, <clears throat> no thoughts to me, uh, scriptionized is really no self-narrative thoughts, no blah, blah narrative. Um, that may be there a few percent of the day, but it's not, that's very, very little. First thing in the morning, there seems to be a of the short-term memories from yesterday, kind of asking, the brain doesn't really ask, but asking if it's worth consolidating into long-term memory. That happens the first in scattered little chunks and bits and bites, not very many, first thing in the morning. And if my blood sugar gets really low, I have a hypoglycemic, uh, the thoughts will tend to start up. I mean, the best uh, example I have of my low blood sugar is the fact that thoughts start. So other than that, uh, the narrative isn't there. Uh, you can still read and use that internal uh, talking to do that and frame problems, but that's that's about the extent of it. So you're not completely uh, unable to think. It's just a recognition that the self-referential narrative that goes on in, you know, certainly in my mind, was useless. It just was non-productive, um, you know, generating all kinds of craving and anger and uh, storylines that uh, had no point or purpose. Nice, and it, and you're sort of connecting the the lack of self-narrative thinking with. Also, self-narrative emotion, uh, and I've seen you talk about that before. Could you say a little bit about how those are linked and how they've been linked in your experience? Well, they all kind of they fell away altogether, which was interesting. Uh, just zip. Uh, my whole practice had been trying to deconstruct the I. Ramana Maharshi's uh, main thrust is forget the objects, just go after the subject. And I had never that never occurred to me to do that, to focus on the subject. And if you look at your Self-referential narrative, it is all self. It's all I, me, my. We've done this exercise many times in workshops. If you just deconstruct that I, uh, it, lo and behold, works. I mean, if there's no I there, no scaffold upon which to build self-referential narrative, if there's no self, then it all falls away. If there's no I there to grab hold of I crave, I want, I desire, I lust, I, whatever it is, then it goes away. You don't have to go out and stamp out desire or stamp out lust or stamp out craving, if there's no I there to hold the other end of that, it just falls away. And I'm curious because you, you mentioned that uh, in the realm of thought, uh, what, what's gone away or been uh, attenuated to a large degree is self-narrative thinking. Is it true also for emotions that your emotional life still includes a range of emotions that aren't sort of self-narrative in nature? I'm curious, like what, what, what hasn't changed uh, in all of this? Well, there has been a fundamental change in a lot of personal emotions. If you think of all the emotions you have where there's an, an I deeply involved, you know, I want this car or I want that person, um, 
that falls away. And so that kind of, the craving goes away. The uh, desire, for example, well, not desire, the initiation of a feeling uh, towards wanting something, some of that's coded in. I mean, if, if I uh, recognize um, a girl, for example, I mean, there's no problem with the, the body-mind recognizing that that's a non-male, but there's no, moving, there's no movement forward. It just stops. There's just a recognition that that's a, a non-male, and then the whole thing just stops. So there's no carry forward. The same thing with limbic fears. I mean, I don't step in front of buses. I don't walk off of cliffs. Um, there's, there's, a, there's limbic anger, which can arise a, a spike very quickly, but there's no carry forward of that. Say someone cuts you off in traffic. You can see, can feel the energy arise, but it doesn't go anyplace. There's no chasing somebody down the highway. There's nobody you know, chasing them off the road. There's no anchor. It just, doesn't, it just doesn't carry forward. So you don't lose the typical neural responses, thank goodness. What you lose is the desire coming leading up to them. And then after they're over, um, you don't make stories about uh, something that needs to be repeated again or something that was really done badly or something terrible. You just don't have the storylines. So the emotions are there very quickly, but then they fall away. And, you know, I, I noticed uh, after a few emails back and forth with you that you often sign your, your emails uh, stillness. And um, clearly that's an important dimension of all this. And I'm, I'm curious if you could say a bit about stillness, which I'm assuming is kind of what's left over when there's not self-narrative uh, thinking and desires kind of just running the show. Could you, could you say a bit about stillness and wh why that's important? Well, just trying to capture what it is. I mean, it is ineffable. We've got, you know, libraries full of books about the ineffability of what this state is. That's the best word I could come to, and I didn't think it up myself, of course. But it's the most uh, clear way to capture this whole thing, that it is stillness. It is very, very still, very quiet. And what happens, interestingly, is that the brain prefers this stillness. It isn't like you've got to make the brain be still. I mean, the brain seems to run a bunch of what we call Skinner box comparisons. It takes, you know, something comes in, some emotion comes in, and now the brain has this calculus. It can either take stillness or it can take this, you know, candy that's come in. And it finds out that the stillness is so much more um, satisfying, so much more, so richer, so much deeper, so much more, you know, whatever powerful, that it just doesn't pick up the other thing. There's no nobody uh, intervening here to shut down desire, to shut down craving. It's just there's nobody to pick it up, and the brain doesn't want to go there. The brain gets so uh, satisfied with this stillness, and the brain keeps, we know some of this, the brain does keep working out how to functionally stabilize this uh, still routine, called a routine. It does change functional patterns. We don't know all of the parts of it yet, but we do know that in meditation, that Judd may have mentioned, uh, we do change functional patterns. And all the brains that we saw in some big studies uh, solve the problems the same way. So I think the same thing seems to happen. You can feel it. You think it can't get any more still, but it does get more and more and more still because the brain is working out that functional pattern. It's like when you first ride a bicycle. 
there's a lot of activity in your brain. You know, the hundredth time, there's no, almost no activity in your brain. Your brain hasn't worked out functionally. The same thing seems to happen with the stillness. It just, the brain wants to do it, it likes it, prefers it, doesn't want to be confused, cluttered, anxious. It wants to be calm, still, and ordered. That's a Christian Ritty quote. And that's what happens. It does go there, and it wants to be there. If you give it enough pictures of stillness, even if they're short ones, the brain will create a new functional pattern and change it to this stillness. That's what it wants to do. And I'm gathering from what you're saying that in some ways it sounds like this is a sort of natural endpoint to some sort of development or evolution. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about that. Do you, do you see this as a natural outcome or development of a certain kind of uh, evolution or, or development of, of, the, of the human being? Well, I get that evolution question a lot. You know, the question is, well, we developed this ego a couple hundred thousand years ago, probably. And, and why, do, why did we develop the ego? Well, it was probably useful when there were, uh, life was a lot simpler. We were living in a cave or something. And we had to do very simple communication. Out of that communication came, a, you know, language. Out of language came this self-talking ability we have. It was probably useful when you and I were deciding who was going to plant the seeds and who was going to plow the soil or who was going to go out and kill the, uh, the gazelle and who was going to, going to take care of the cooking it. Very useful. But uh, today, today's world, things have really changed. There's a number that Peter Bauman uh, told me, I was out in San Francisco a couple weeks ago with him, that 500 years ago we had 5,000 thoughts a day. Now we have 55,000 thoughts a day. Uh, it really has turned into an evolutionary disadvantage. I mean, most of our stress, our unhappiness, our anger, our fixations are driven by this self-referential narrative. We, it is no longer useful, and it's no longer capable, with the very limited capacity it has of handling seven plus or minus two things at a time in short-term memory, it's no longer capable of dealing with this incredibly complicated world. So it just gets frustrated at its inability to deal with it. That's very, that's very interesting. In terms of Zen, uh, two questions. One was, you know, there, there's a lot of writing in the Zen tradition, different texts, uh, recording people's teachings and stuff like that, where people will talk about no thought or non-thought. Like, that's a very uh, big phrase. I remember reading some of Dogen's writings, and it was just like non-thought was everywhere. I, I'm curious, because most contemporary teachers that I've run into, they don't tend to interpret that literally, um, but it sounds like from how you describe your own experience, that maybe maybe those are, at least in part, literal descriptions. Uh, curious to hear what you think about that. Well, I have a Dogen Zenji quote that I use in my talk, since be without thought. This is the secret of meditation. And you've got even, you know, well, not even, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. You know, yoga, the, the second sutra, which is, you know, the foundation of yoga, is yoga is the stilling of the modifications of the mind. Ramana Maharshi said, in Samadhi there's only the feeling I am and no thoughts. And so you've got a Maharaj, another big 20th century sage, to be free from thoughts is itself meditation. Even the Bhagavad Gita, with the intellect steadfast and the mind sunk into the self, allow no thought to arise. So this is, you know, this is not something brand new. This is not new on the scene. This has been around for 2,500 years. It's been described the same way. The fact that it's not common now, I think just people haven't focused on it. It's, been, it's certainly possible. I'm nothing special. 
Okay, cool. The, the other question I had is I was reading one of your blog posts, and you, you mentioned a quote from a 20th century Zen teacher who said something like, uh, enlightenment is capable of, of infinite expansion or something like that. Yeah, I, endless, enlo- endless enlargement. Yeah. Endless enlargement. Could you say a little bit about that? I, I'm curious how that lines up with your own experience and then what, what you make of that in terms of what's possible well, there, there is this vision, I think an incorrect one in the West and maybe in the East as well, contemporaneously, that, you know, enlightenment is a, is a one-time fantastic event like an Olympic gold medal. In fact, that's not my experience, nor is it the experience of many other people that I've talked to who have been willing to share about it. Um, we've got 50 trillion synaptic interconnections and 100 billion neurons. It would be kind of strange if all of that flipped over at least saving 10% of it, or even 5% of it. You've still got you know, trillions of synaptic interconnections formed having to do with maybe the self. Uh, how could that completely all change in one moment? Uh, it would take place over time. Uh, and my experience has been just that even after the page turned, you can feel things changing, as much as you can feel your brain. But certainly this stillness gets more and more pervasive. It gets more and more worked out. And uh, as Adyashanti's reported as well, things keep coming up. You know, we've had this, we've all had this in meditation where you see something you haven't thought about for, haven't had an experience of for decades. It shows up. And if nobody takes delivery on that package, it gets weakened. We know this uh, from our neuroscience, those synaptic interconnections, if we don't reinforce them, they begin to open up. And as they open up, then that particular attachment, that particular concretion in consciousness loosens up and maybe goes away. So that works out over time, even after you've had a big fundamental shift. The stuff keeps going on and on. This this uh, end of 19th century, early 20th century Zen master said exactly that. He says, not many people, not many of my contemporaries, the other Zen teachers in Japan, uh, say this. But in fact, you know, enlightenment is capable of endless enlargement. That's been my experience. It just keeps going and going and going. There's no one point at which there's a bright line. Either you are or you aren't enlightened. Uh, everybody's on the path. And everybody's awakening at some rate. And you just keep moving further and further down that stream. That's my experience. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Um, you you've been collaborating with someone who we had on the show. His name's Judson Brewer, uh, works at Yale. And you've been collaborating kind of on the contemplative side of things. There's probably probably other ways. Um, and what's so interesting in, in my mind, when I see someone describing experiences of awakening or things that have changed, you know, that's not uncommon to see descriptions and see various phenomenological reports of uh, different kinds of awakenings or different depths of awakening. But what's really interesting, I think, in your case is that not only are you describing it from the inside, but you've also been part of various uh, scientific studies where you're put in fMRI machines, you do different you know, uh, questionnaires, things like that. You've been under the microscope, so to speak. And sure enough, uh, what you're describing ho- holds up uh, in that context as well. So I'd be really curious to hear both about your experience being like a research participant in these things. Uh, and also on, on kind of what you're working on and what you're helping with, with respect to uh, the sort of uh, neuroscientific approach to consciousness. Well, and I'm glad you brought that up. I, I think it's terribly important for people uh, who are trying to move this whole process forward to not uh, hide behind 
some veil or some robe or some old story, but to get out there and see if and see what in fact you do know. I mean, what in fact can we look at neuroscientifically? One of the problems we have in this Yale work that I'm collaborating with a lot is getting uh, subjects, getting quote enlightened subjects. If it's a famous teacher, there's no upside in it for them. If they go into the fMRI and it turns out they doesn't look like they're awakened at all. This is a big problem for them. So to me, I think you've got to be have the courage to go out there and you know be studied, uh, whether it's psychological tests or computer tests or fMRIs or EEGs or whatever it is. Uh, get out there and see what you do know, and not to expose yourself, but to understand. I mean, to me, it was about understanding. My thoughts had stopped, and I didn't understand that. As an empirical scientist, I didn't understand how that could possibly happen. Uh, we had no tools 15 years ago. They're just now coming online. And it turns out that, you know, lo and behold, they do yield a lot of insight. I mean, the work that Judd's doing at Yale um, you can actually watch, as I'm sure Judd described, you can actually watch your key selfing centers or center real time. And you can watch yourself go in and out of selfing, in and out of eyeing. That's an important thing to understand uh, for the next generation of folks who come on down the line, because the more we can learn about what we've experienced, the more likely we are to be able to make their path a lot easier. I'm under no delusion anybody's going to do 20,000 hours of practice. Almost nobody does. Uh, we've got to get it down to where people can do it in some reasonable time that will mean something to the, to the tweet Facebook generation. It's got to be very fast. It's got to be very simple. And that's what the whole Yale work is about now. And this Go Blue project we're working on is to try to make it easy for people to do this thing and save a lot of time, thousands and thousands, hopefully tens of thousands of hours to make it happen. And and what do you think the significance of that might be like on a on a larger scale in terms of cultural or societal? Like what what is it do you have any do you ever think about what that means uh, or what that might mean? Well, we're working with three big philanthropists. Uh, you, I don't think you met them or not, but three philanthropists. A lot of this work the major agencies aren't interested in funding. Um, so we got philanthropy money. Uh, these guys are really uh, heavily engaged, Jeff Walker in particular, heavily engaged personally in what's going on. Um, these guys believe, and I, I agree with them, we're heading towards some kind of tipping point. There's this feeling that things are really a mess right now. But there's also a counter feeling that but things are coming together in amazingly serendipitous ways that may portend you know, some really positive direction coming out of this crisis we're heading into. And I think that's that's a big part of this. Uh, you know, somehow we've got to figure out a way to make this thing better. And to me, if we could somehow, you know, get people's narrative down to one twentieth what it is right now, their lives would be better. They would not want the same things they want. They would not have the same cravings they do. They would not be abusing the environment. They would not be over consuming. I think the whole would not be fighting so much. The whole world might be able to change if we could just wind down our egos to a manageable level. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun, 
from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.